0: Your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Starting in verse 1, reading through verse 14. This is the Word of God, contains everything that we need for life and godliness. It is without error in the original languages in which it was given, and we have the promise in uh, faithful translations, such as the one from which I'm reading, that it remains to us His Word uh, with His authority in it. Uh, and it is He who speaks now as I read. Listen carefully and reverently, which is one and the same thing. Matthew 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited... Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast." And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, "Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes?" And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. Pray with me. O oh Lord, we covet wisdom to understand the meaning of this passage. I covet that wisdom. Uh, I pray that I would say only that which is true regarding its meaning and its application. And would you please give us grace, Lord, to understand its application to each one of us. Uh, That application will be different for some than for others. Would you please speak to our hearts and let us know individually and collectively how this applies to us. And would you please grant us the grace to receive what we hear with faith and humility. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but maybe it has. So I'm going to uh, suggest it and uh, tell you what it is. And if it hasn't happened to you, just try to imagine it happening to you, okay? But so maybe it has, but maybe it hasn't. But here's the, Here's what it, the scenario. Have you ever repeatedly invited somebody? Maybe it was a brother or sister. Maybe it was a friend of yours from church or from the neighborhood. Uh, maybe it was even an adult. Maybe it was just somebody else entirely. But have you ever invited someone that you know uh, and done so more than one time to do something with you? Okay, so perhaps it was go to church. And by the way, children, you're not too old, uh, uh, not too young to invite friends of yours that you know in the neighborhood to come to our church. We would love to have them. Uh, and so uh, that's something you can do. Maybe you did that one time. Maybe you did that several times to... uh Somebody and said, why don't you come to church with my family? Maybe you invited a, a, a person uh, to come over to your house and visit with you at your house or to play a game with you. And you invited the person not just once or twice, but maybe even three or four times. But that rep- that person repeatedly either said no, or just didn't give you an answer and by their actions showed you that they didn't want whatever it was you were inviting them to, didn't want to be a part of it. You can imagine, if that's never happened to you, uh, if you get old enough, it will have it will happened to you. Um, I think most of the adults here uh, know something about that, uh, from perhaps neighbors that you've invited to church, or family members, or what have you. Um, Maybe it was something else where you invited somebody to do something with you, and nothing came of it because the individuals you were talking to weren't interested and showed that one way or another. After a while, children, that gets tiring to invite a person over and over again to do something that that would be for their good if they did it or would be enjoyable. And if you're like me, you give up inviting them. You don't invite them anymore. Because you can see they don't really, aren't interested in you. Or what you are offering them to do. God is like this. Person who has invited people. To do something that would be an indescribable blessing for them. And that is to come to Jesus and believe in the Lord Jesus and come into a loving relationship with God himself through Jesus. And this happened during the Old Testament age. It still happens today, but it happened to a whole nation during the Old Testament age. And that was the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he did that for basically about Fourteen hundred years, he invited the Jewish people who were outwardly the Old Testament Church, who were outwardly in covenant with uh, with God, with Yahweh. I'm going to call him Yahweh from now on in this sermon because that's uh, my points. Um, and he invited them over and over and over again, and he finally got tired of inviting them. His patience was spent. And that's what this passage, one of the main points of this passage, and that has an application to individuals and to the church in the New Testament age, which we are living in right now as well. So, listen to that as I as I read uh, those points to you, which I will do in just a moment. But first I want to remind you the, the background here of what's going on, uh, when this is occurring, when Jesus is saying this. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This is what... Uh, many people in the church called Passion Week. Uh, Passion means to suffer, by the way, uh, in in the original uh, language from which it's derived, the word. And um, it's the last week of Jesus' life. His, He has, uh, on Sunday of this week, which is the first day of this week, uh, he entered into Jerusalem, you'll recall, on the back of a donkey's colt in that triumphal procession where people were... uh, Saying Hosanna to him to God in the highest, and uh, called Jesus the the Son of God and uh, or Son of Man, maybe it was, um, and uh, strew um, branches and and garments in front of Jesus as as an expression of their um, uh, of honoring him, way of honoring him. That happened on Sunday, but as we all know, uh, the uh, climate changed very very quickly in Jerusalem. On Monday of this week, uh, Jesus drives out those who were doing business in the temple's court of the Gentiles, drives them out of the temple precinct in a violent rebuke, not only to those actual desecrators of the temple who were buying and selling and changing money, but also he was rebuking the Israel's religious establishment, for it was the Sanhedrin and its members who benefited greatly from the fees that they were charging these businessmen, and perhaps women, for the privilege of setting up shop in the temple complex. He was rebuking them all, in other words, by his driving out the money changers and what he said on that occasion about uh, making uh, his father's house a den of thieves. Also on Monday of that week, Jesus cursed the fig tree for its failure to bear fruit, good fruit. And, of course, that fig tree, as we said a few weeks ago, uh, was representative of the status of the nation the ethnic nation of Israel for its collective failure to bear good spiritual fruit as a church as the old testament church and then on tuesday of that week jesus is confronted by the chief priests uh, and the scribes and the elders who openly question and obviously with great uh uh disrespect and disdain in their voices as they ask these questions, openly question his authority, the authority that Jesus had to do the things that he did and to say the things that he had said, particularly in recent days, but really over the course of his three-year ministry that they have been, been watching him. They challenge his authority to do any of what he has done. And after they ask, by what authority do you do this? After refusing to answer their question because of the nature, excuse me, because of the, their failure, the, these men, their failure to answer his question regarding the nature of John the Baptist's ministry and authority, after refusing to answer their question, Jesus proceeds to tell them three parables. One right after the other all of which, all three of which, were designed to expose, to denounce, and to condemn the historic wickedness, not only of Israel's religious leaders, past and present, but also of the nation itself as a whole, and the Old Testament church itself as a whole, for having imitated and followed these ungodly leaders of theirs, whom Jesus is addressing right now. The first of the parables we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the parable of the two sons. The second parable, which we looked at uh, last week, was the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, And today we are going to look at the third and last of these three parables. The parable, I'm going to call it, it has different names, but I'm going to call it the parable of the royal marriage feast. That is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. There are three points that we are going to look at. The first point is this, that is made in verses 1 through 7 of our text, is that Yahweh's invitations to Jacob's biological descendants to become true citizens of heaven was repeatedly rejected by most of them. Secondly, the second point is, Yahweh's invitation to Jacob's New Testament spiritual descendants to become true citizens of heaven would be happily embraced by them. And then finally, thirdly, uh, verses 11 through 14, we learn, Yahweh's invitation to members of the visible church to become citizens of heaven has only ever been accepted by those to whom he has imputed and imparted righteousness. It's a long one. I'll repeat it when I come to each point. Um, Sorry for the length of the points, but uh, I really felt it necessary to do that, so bear with me. Okay, so the first point. Yahweh's invitations, plural, to Jacob's biological descendants, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to become true citizens of heaven, those invitations were repeatedly rejected by most of Jacob's, the people of Israel. Verses 1 through 7 makes this point. This first half of the parable, these first seven verses, are all about the ethnic people of Israel. The Old Testament church is what uh, I often refer to it as and should be referred to as, made up almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely of the biological descendants of Jacob, of, excuse me, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it had, uh, like the church, the visible church, I should say, today, in today's world, this Jewish Old Testament church was composed of both true believers in Yahweh and in his anointed, or Messiah, who is yet uh, future coming uh, from that time period. Um, so it was composed both of New Testament, excuse me, of true believers, rather, and of false professors, of faith in the God uh, of their forefathers. So both wheat and tares in the Old Testament church. However, for most of the Old Testament church's history, hell-bound pseudo-believers far outnumbered heaven-bound genuine believers. And we all know that when we read our Old Testaments. Well, through this parable that we're looking at today, Christ, our Savior, reminds his hearers, his adversaries, of the fact that God had repeatedly urged the pseudo-believers among Old Testament Israel's population to become true believers in him and in his promised Deliverer and King, the Messiah. Verses 1 through 4. Actually, I'll read verses 2 through 4. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." The final phase of Jesus' messianic kingdom, of our Savior's, our glorified and enthroned Savior's messianic kingdom, is going to be, and this is the final phase, the new heavens and the new earth. And this final phase is regularly represented, of the messianic kingdom, is regularly represented in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, as a feast taking place in a great banquet hall in which the guests are reclining together around a table loaded with food, delicious food, and joyfully celebrating the blessings bestowed upon them by their Savior and King, the Lord Jesus. That is what the new heavens and the new earth and the blessings that we will be rejoicing in are represented as, on a regular basis actually. There was at least six, and I think there were more than that that I looked at this past week. At any rate, it's this end-of-the-ages phase of the, that kingdom uh, which is represented here in this parable. When everything is all said and done, after Jesus has returned, uh goats and the sheep, the whole thing. Resurrection, everything. That's what's being represented here. Of course, it's uh, not hard to figure this one out. Uh, the king... Uh, who sends out his servants uh, to invite people to his royal wedding feast, uh, or this royal wedding feast of his son, that king represents God. And the son may, probably does, represent Jesus. So, although the son has, a, has almost no significance in this parable, so uh, some scholars question if that really is a reference to Jesus or not, or if it just helps to make the story, uh, uh, fill out the details of the story. But it could represent Christ. At any rate, the king who sends out uh, his servants to invite people to this uh, wedding feast represents God. And the people uh, who are being invited in verses 1 through 7 there, or 4 through 7, excuse me, 1 through 4, are they represent the biological or ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. Remember, Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Um, and the people represent... Those biological descendants of the patriarchs down through the centuries past. Okay? Now notice again what verses three and four say. He sent out his slaves to call, to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out the slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. What Jesus is doing here these, in those th- two verses in this parable is he is, because obviously he's speaking about God, about the king, and God is uh, represented here as the king, and he is pointing to the fact that his father, our God, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and the New, um, has been long-suffering and persistent, persistent in his dealings with the people of Israel down through the centuries. Um, he has been uh, patient with them. He has been forbearing, and he has persisted in calling them to himself, to truly be uh, in covenant with him internally, not merely externally. And repeatedly did he call them to Those who were pseudo-believers in ancient Israel, who were only outwardly in covenant with him, to repent of their unbelief. And to truly trust in him, and love him, and to trust in his promised future messianic deliverer and king, or as we often say, Savior and Lord. I want you to notice something in verses three, and I, I the way I read it uh, kind of pointed, uh, alluded to this fact. But there are actually three invitations that are spoken of. Uh, one is kind of just alluded to, and the other two are explicit. But there are three invitations that are made by this king. The first you notice uh, precedes what happened in verse three. Some folks uh, had been in, had already been invited to the wedding feast prior to verse three, and. In verse 3, he is instructing his servants, the king is, to go out and, and call those people who had already been invited, come on, everything's ready, come. And then the third invitation we read of in verse 4, he sends them out again after they are unwilling to come, and, and he pleads with greater urgency and, and says, look, this is going to be a great, wonderful time. There's all sorts of delicious food here. We're all ready. We're waiting on you. And again, what Jesus is doing through the parable and the king's behavior is pointing his um, hearers, these ungodly men and others who they represented, pointing out the enormous patience and forbearance of God himself in his dealings with the Old Testament people of God. So, how did Old Testament Israel as a whole not uh, everyone, but as a whole, how did uh, the Jewish church respond to God's repeated overtures to them to be truly in covenant with him, to be true believers in him uh, and believers in his uh, Messiah? We all know what happened. The majority of the Jewish people down through the ages, perhaps the vast majority, responded to Yahweh's call to repent and become true believers By, with indifference, or with outright active hostility. We read of that in verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention, and went their way. There's the indifference. They paid no attention, and went their own way. One to his own farm, another to his business. That was, that's the indifference uh, uh, response. But then, verse 6, we read of the hostility response. And the rest, meaning the rest of the people that were invited, seized the king's slaves and mistreated them and killed them. That's how the Old Testament church, as a whole, over the centuries, responded to God's gracious invitation to them to receive his forgiveness and to receive the blessings that Christ was going to purchase for them uh, on Calvary's cross. Didn't want anything to do with it. So, what was about to happen, remember Jesus speaking this uh, uh, right around 29 A.D., uh, probably, 29, 30 A.D., A.D., twenty nine thirty. What was about to happen, on account of ethnic Israel's repeated rejections of Yahweh's repeated appeals to them to repent and truly believe in him and his Messiah, who was telling the parable. What was about to happen is described in verse 7. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. God's patience had run out. He'd been patient for 1,400 years, arguably. And the city to which Jesus refers in the parable in verse 7 is Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the nation of which it was the capital was about to be destroyed by, notice, God's, the king's armies, the Roman armies. This, by the way, of course, is a reference to uh, the general Titus, who was the son of the emperor Vespasian. uh, What he was going to do and unleash on Jerusalem uh, in 70 AD, and did unleash on Jerusalem, some less than 40 years, about 40 years from the time when Jesus spoke this parable. That's what he was predicting, prophesying. And God's patience had already run out when Jesus was this last week of Jesus' life, especially when he was crucified. It's believed, we don't know this for sure, but uh, there are uh, those historians who have tried to uh, estimate by information that Josephus and others, uh, I'm not sure about others, but certainly Josephus, uh, estimates of how many Jews perished um, in Jerusalem are... um, A million folks. Because what happened was they crowded into the city as the Roman armies were advancing against them. So people from the countryside and other places crowded into fortified Jerusalem for protection. And so once the city walls were breached, uh, indescribable numbers of people were slaughtered. Jewish people. And the nation that that city was the capital of ceased to be a nation. Ceased to be the church. And lost its special favored status before God. The lampstand had been withdrawn, if you will. This has some implications, this point. First, in verses 1-7, through we need to understand and rejoice in the fact that the uh, all-glorious God of the universe is enormously patient and forbearing in his dealings with unbelievers. Remember, he causes the sun to rise and set on them and the rain to fall and uh, provides them with food and shelter. Unbelievers who hate him. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, you say, well, I don't hate God. Yes, you do. You do. You just don't realize it. Your actions indicate that you hate him. But God is enormously patient and forbearing. And this is especially true, especially true of those who are within the bounds of the visible church. All those who are at least outwardly in covenant with him, though not inwardly in covenant with him, whose hearts have not truly been changed. Perhaps you are one of those individuals who is a member of this church or some other church, who is a respectable citizen of the community, who uh, believes in God, And tries to live a moral life, perhaps. But you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in faith and fled to Him alone for your salvation from the hell that you deserve and that we all deserve and asked Him to be the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, you're an enemy of God. It doesn't matter that you're a member of a church. You could even be a leader in that church. doesn't matter. You are God's enemy. And regardless of what you or your church or anybody else says about you, his wrath is upon you. Now, God is patient. That's why you're still breathing and why you're not in hell. But God's toleration of your pretend allegiance to him because remember, you're in the church. You say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. His toleration of your pretend allegiance to him will end. And when it does, you will wish you'd never been born. This leads me to my second point. Yahweh's invitation to Jacob's new Testament spiritual descendants, as opposed to the biological descendants of the Old Testament, Yahweh's invitation to Jacob's new te- uh, New Testament spiritual descendants to become true citizens of heaven. That invitation would be happily embraced by those individuals, and we read of this in verses. Uh, this is pointed out in verses eight through ten. Let me read it to you. Then he said, "This is after he destroyed the city." Uh, uh, of these people who rejected his invitations. Then he said to his slaves, so in some sense, this is post-AD 70, after AD 70, although I don't think he can be dogmatic about dates with respect to this parable. But at any rate, um, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests, with people who accepted the invitation to enter the dinner hall. I say that intentionally. I'll say more about that in a minute. But it's quite apparent that these words that I just read to you from verses 8 through 10 refer to an invitation, again, that is yet future from the time of Jesus' telling of this parable in 29 AD, AD 29. I'm not going to keep doing that. if I Wherever I put the AD, just deal with it, please, and be patient with me. Anyway, um, this invitation to those folks... <clears throat> is referring to what would transpire following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I believe, actually, that's probably the more appropriate date uh, to to place this. What happened at Pentecost? What happened at Pentecost was the doors of the kingdom of heaven were flung open by the triune God, and the Spirit in particular, thereby allowing the non-Jewish nations and peoples of the earth to come flooding into the New Covenant Church, or New Testament Church. That's what Pentecost did. And this New Covenant Church would be a church that would no longer be exclusively Jewish in flavor, as the Old Testament Church was, but would be composed of all those who shared the patriarch's sincere faith in Yahweh and in his messianic deliverer and king, who of course was and is Jesus. Anybody, whether they were biological descendants of the patriarchs or not, who had the faith of the patriarchs, who were spiritual descendants of the patriarchs, would be brought in, regardless of ethnicity. And these spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are represented by the dinner guests who accepted the king's invitation to his son's wedding, who filled the wedding hall, and who then joyfully participated in the marriage feast with the king. What's the explanation for why these New Testament invitees would trust in Yahweh? and his anointed Deliverer and King, and why the Old Testament invitees, or at least many of them, did not. What's the explanation for that? It's found in verse 14. The very last verse of this parable. For many are called, that's the invitations, but few are chosen. That's the explanation. Few are chosen. The reason why some respond to the invitation and others do not, regardless of which side of the cross we're talking about, by the way, is the gracious choice of the sovereign God to save the individuals that accept the invitation. That's it. You see, God has to decide. God has to decide who, among the fallen mass of sinful humanity, he will rescue from hell, from an eternity of suffering. He has to decide. Yes, this is predestination. Why does he have to decide? Because, here's the reason, because if God doesn't choose to rescue certain sinners from that fallen mass of humanity, from the eternal punishment their sins deserve, we all deserve that, every last one of us, if he doesn't choose to rescue some of those folks, then those sinners, all of them, will never, ever put their trust in Christ alone to save them. And will certainly go to hell when they take their last breath on the earth. And why is that? Why, would, why is there no hope for anybody whom God doesn't choose? The reason is because of this. Every last person, and I'll read a verse that bears this point out in a moment, but every last person who has been conceived since the fall of man, with the obvious exception of Jesus Christ, every other person who has ever been conceived since the fall has been conceived spiritually dead. That is to say, spiritually dead lacking life and therefore incapable of truly loving God or of choosing to trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope of being reconciled to God and going to heaven. The verse that, one verse, just one of several that make this point, is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Reading through verse 8. So listen. For those who are according to the flesh... Uh, who are uh, the the sinful uh, nature, we'll refer to it as, for those who are uh, according to the flesh, or sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is, note this, hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is why God needs to choose to save a sinner from the hell that he deserves. Because the, spiritual, the, the, the sinner is utterly unable to do that, in his natural state as he was conceived, and that is spiritually dead. He's dead. So the only way that a spiritually dead person is ever going to be forgiven of his sins and reconciled to uh, uh, the thrice-holy God who is, uh, which, by the way, requires that that spiritually dead sinner make a choice to trust in Jesus as his only hope, the only way that's going to happen is if God first gives him, that sinner, a new heart. A heart that Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. Um, let me read that to you. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Is it It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight, in the sight of the nations. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, the the return of the captives from uh, Babylon was a picture of of the uh, uh, unbelieving Israelites, uh, unbelieving people, elect people coming to believe in uh, God and in uh, Jesus for their salvation. Uh, Let me read that again. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Therefore, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people. I will be your God. That is speaking of spiritual Israel, um, that is typified in the return of the captives of biological Israel to uh, Israel uh, to um, yeah the land uh, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. But that new heart, you see, that new spirit, that new heart, God has to give to the spiritually dead who are in Israel. And God is only going to give this new heart to those whom he first chooses to be objects of his forgiveness and mercy. He's got to do that, or we're all doomed. And it is those sinners whom God chose to save before the foundation of the world who become spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by trusting in the same Messiah that those patriarchs of old did Because God willed that they should have a new heart, it is only those sinners whom God has chosen who will receive forgiveness from him in Christ. Because they can't come to Christ unless he chooses them and then gives them a new heart so that they can come to Christ in faith. And this is true whether the person be of Jewish background, a biological ethnic descendant of the patriarchs, or a Gentile whether that person be a New Testament saint or an Old Testament saint. I should say elect person. doesn't matter. God has to choose. And if you've never trusted in Jesus alone to save you, the Jesus of the Bible, lots of Jesuses out there, as I often say, uh, the Mormon Jesus and... uh, uh, the Muslim Jesus and so on—none of those are the true Christ. The true, the true Savior of sinners is 100% God and 100% man. Is the only way to heaven. If you've never trusted in Him alone, you need a new heart, and you can't give it to yourself. Only God can give it to you, and you better hope that He does. Now, if you feel the sense of danger that I hope you're feeling right now, and the sense of dread. And if you understand that Jesus is your only hope of being forgiveness, that uh, uh Allah's not going to cut it, um, no other uh, God is going to cut it, but uh, this God who is one God in three persons, the second person of whom became the Savior of sinners. If you understand that he's your only hope and you want him, believe in him. Trust him to save you. And he will. That means he's already given you a new heart. If you want him, that's because you have a new heart already. And if you don't want him, then you need to say, God, I need Jesus, but I don't want him. Would you please give me a new heart? And you need to spend time reading the passages in the Bible. And you need to spend time going to church and listening to sermons that share the gospel to you so that God may, if he's willing and gracious And he is gracious, but if he wants to be gracious to you, will cause the means of grace to cause you to come alive and to embrace Jesus as your only hope of being forgiven by him. And then you will be, immediately, once you get that new heart. But in the meantime, you need to read the scriptures and come to church and pray for mercy. Thirdly, and this is very briefly, But this is the third point. So the first point I'll review. Yahweh's invitation to Jacob's uh, biological descendants to become true citizens of heaven was repeatedly rejected by most of them. But that same invitation to Jacob's New Testament spiritual descendants to become true citizens of heaven was going to be happily embraced by them. Thirdly, and finally, this passage teaches us that Yahweh's invitation to members of the visible church I'll explain that in a moment. To become citizens of heaven has only ever been accepted by those to whom he has imputed and imparted righteousness. Verses 11 through 14 teaches this point, really, 11 through 13. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in, in wedding clothes and he said to him friend how did you come in here without wedding clothes and he that is the man improperly dressed was speechless the wedding clothes that are being referred to there uh, are is the imputed and imparted righteousness of God. Some, uh, some commentators and uh, Christian folks, well meaning, but some think that Jesus' imputed righteousness alone is what uh, is in mind here in the parable. That Jesus is only thinking of that righteousness of Him. Perfect righteousness that is credited to or reckoned to be the uh, believer's righteousness in the courtroom of heaven when he believes on Christ. That's uh, that's what imputed means, to credit or to reckon, to be something. Um, and that is to be righteous in the sight of God. Uh, so that he can declare you to be righteous. And there are some thinkers uh, and theologians who think it's just the imputed righteousness of Jesus that is referenced here, uh, or referred to here by by the wedding clothes. Now, this is certainly, the imputed righteousness of Christ, is certainly part of the wedding clothes, what they signify, no doubt about that. But not all. Not all. One must have the imputed, perfect righteousness of Christ uh, when standing before God, and that's certainly true. But those whom God imputes the righteousness of Christ to, He also always imparts experiential, growing experiential righteousness to those same elect individuals. And while those whom God chooses to unite to Jesus are not forgiven and declared righteous, that is to say justified, on the basis of any good works which those individuals have done or will do, those individuals whom God justifies through faith in Christ will and must increasingly put off sin and put on righteousness as Christians. Otherwise, they aren't Christians. They aren't forgiven. They are not justified by God. But there's still hope. There's still hope. As long as you're still breathing, there's still hope. If that's you. If you... Have claimed to be a Christian, perhaps you walked down an aisle or signed an invitation card or shed some tears in a worship service one time, and you said, Well, I became a Christian. If you have no evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, if there's no growing holiness in your life, then you are not a Christian. You are under the wrath of God. And you need to be truly converted. That is to say, you must truly believe in the Jesus of the Bible and trust him to not only rescue you from hell, but to rule over your life from this point forward. You must... Not only have Jesus' righteousness be clothed in Jesus' righteousness through imputation, but you must undergo a fundamental moral change in your life. Only the Holy Spirit can fundamentally change you or me from the inside out. And he does that to everybody whom God justifies by faith in Christ. And that's what you need. You need a true work of saving grace on the part of the Holy Spirit in your life. What happens to churchgoers? To members of the visible church whose lives have not been transformed? Who may be claimed to be followers of God, but aren't really uh, lovers of God and trusters in Jesus? What happens to them? Verse 13, of our parable, makes this horrifying point. Then the king said to the servants, after he realized that the man had no wedding clothes, had no righteousness. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think all of you know that that is metaphorical language for the suffering, the eternal suffering of hell. That's where a person goes, a sinner goes, whose sin has not been covered from God's sight, and where there is not actual transformation, albeit an imperfect one. We never achieve perfection or anything close to this side of heaven, but in those who are truly his, there will be... Desire to obey God. And if that has not uh, happened to you when you take your last breath, regardless of what uh, your membership might be in a church, you are going to hell. Don't make that foolish choice. Come to Christ. You are offered, you are invited to drink from the streams of forgiveness that flow from the cross of Christ. All you must do is say, Jesus, save me. And mean it. And give him your life. And you will be saved. And you can enter into the wedding hall of the new heavens and the new earth. And joyfully celebrate forevermore the blessings that Christ has purchased for you. But you must believe truly in him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, sobering though it is. We thank you, Lord, that you are a patient God, that you are a God who forbears enormously when people, sinners, rebels, ignore you for sometimes years and years. But you keep extending the invitation as long as they have breath. Lord, if there's anyone in my hearing today who doesn't know you um, truly, doesn't know your Son truly, open his eyes. Give him that new heart that only you can give. Remove his heart of stone and save him from himself and from your wrath. And for the rest of us, Lord, who already have been forgiven by you, and loved by you, and uh, forgiven by you, and uh, are heaven-bound, would you please help us to grow in godliness? It's not only evidence that we are your children, but it is necessary for us to enter into heaven. We must be sanctified. Would you please continue that work and chip away at the sin that, and that still resides within us, the old man. Please destroy him progressively, Lord. We want to honor you and please you. Give us the grace to do so, we ask. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper. I get to take that after many months without it. I hope you all are as excited as I am. This uh, meal, the Lord's Supper, is one of two sacraments, of course, that our Savior instituted before his ascension into heaven that the church should practice uh, until he returns. Uh, the other, of course, is baptism. One of the records of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, where we read the following. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The kingdom that this parable that we just looked at was speaking of, and that time of which it spoke. Amen. The Lord's Supper, um, like baptism, uh, is a sign a symbol, but it is also more than a sign. Uh, We believe scripture teaches that. It is a sign and a seal of the new covenant, that gracious covenant that God um, uh, initially uh, and cryptically uh, spoke in the garden just after the fall in Genesis 3.15, and that progressively un. Unfolded over time through the successive administrations of that covenant until the final expression of the new covenant, of the gracious covenant, which is uh, the new covenant. And this meal uh, pictures for us and seals for us, uh, uh, that those covenant promises that we have in Christ. It is also not only a sign and seal of the new covenant, but also a picture of the body of Christ in our union, spiritual union together. It is to be observed in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice of himself, uh, but indeed of all of the elements of his atoning work. Uh, and by pro- uh, partaking of it, we are proclaiming Christ's death uh, until he comes again. It is of great benefit. Uh, the scriptures teach to uh, those who rightly partake of the sacrament, that is, those who are uh, truly believers, and whose hearts are, have been properly prepared uh, for participation in the meal. Um, it's quite clear, it's implied, I should say, but I think it's uh, quite evident that what God does, God the Holy Spirit does, he uses this means of grace, sanctifying grace, to uh, sanctify that is to uh, strengthen us in our uh, battle against temptation, to uh, comfort us when we are troubled and when we are under attack, to um, um, spur us on to greater obedience as we ponder what great love he has shown for us, as uh, we are reminded of in the sacrament. Uh, and he renews our love and our zeal for him and for others, and uh, presumably increases uh, our faith uh, as well, if needed. Uh, as we are reminded of his wonderful good- goodness. But this meal is not for everyone. Uh, indeed, it is only for those who are truly believers, uh, like not just mere professors, uh, but it is for true believers and, uh, uh, and, and for those who have made a credible profession, uh, one that the Church recognizes of belief, trust in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. person needs to be a christian in order to partake needs to be a baptized member in good standing of this or some other church and not under discipline you must not come to this meal if you knowingly are uh, disobeying god and not repentant of that disobedience if there's something in your heart that you're some sin in your heart that you're cherishing and you're not letting go of and saying god take this from me please you are playing games with god you are treating God as if he was a fool and isn't seeing what you're doing, or thinking, or saying. And you are in grave danger. You must not come to this meal, but use this time to cry out to God and ask for his forgiveness. And that he would soften your heart and cause you to see uh, and, uh, the error of your ways and change. But this does not mean you have to be perfect to come to this meal. It doesn't mean you have to have all your spiritual ducks in a row. It just means you have to want Christ, uh, and you have to want him in fuller measure, and you want, have to want uh, to please him, um, and the Father and the Spirit, by your life and by your behavior, and you want to be rid of that sin that you know grieves his heart and uh, does grieve yours as well. Um, so if you're wrestling with sin... If you're struggling with it, but you're truly struggling and fighting, um, this is absolutely what you need uh, from the Lord. So you need to partake. Let us now pray together and ask for God's blessing. uh, On our on this meal, let's pray. Oh Lord, we rejoice that you have, when you left Lord Jesus, you didn't really leave, uh, but you returned uh, by your Spirit, uh, who inhabits our hearts, and uh, you are in this room by your Spirit uh, today. And you are in our, our partaking of this meal. This is your meal. You are the host of this table, and it's uh, offering these elements uh, to those of us who are your people, and we are grateful. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to partake in faith, clinging to you afresh and pondering the great love and mercy that you have shown us through your atoning work, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us the grace to feed upon you um, uh, and your finished work by faith in our hearts now, and we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name. Now give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, Uh, and again, uh, per my uh, what I said earlier, that's how we're going to do it, Uh, and then we'll eat together and later drink. The body of Christ was broken for you take an eat in the same manner he took the cup And having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. O God of love and mercy and grace, we rejoice that you that we get to call you our Father. We thank you for your paternal love for us that knows no bounds. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved us so much, that you you endured your own divine wrath uh, in our place and so much more. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you loved us so much, that you applied to us the redemption purchased by Christ and have filled us with your presence. And even when we sin, Lord, you do not forsake us. Thank you. We thank you that you, in your love, have provided means to uh, bless us and to convey your blessings to us that you purchased for us, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for this means of sanctifying grace. We do ask that you would use it, Lord, uh, our partaking now, as a means to make us more like you, to make us more uh, holy, uh, faithful, obedient, loving, merciful, and good. Uh, We want to be like Jesus. Would you please cause us to do so and use this means toward that end? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.